Uh, greetings and welcome. My name is Michael Le Chevalier and I am the Associate Director of the Lumen Christi Institute. Um, since 2008, a previous economic crisis, we have hosted ongoing conversations between economists, bishops, and scholars drawing into conversation economics and Catholic social thought onto issues ranging from the human person to the family to environmental degradation. Reflections like these are particularly important during moments of crisis where the common good is threatened by economic equality, racism, and political polarization. And for these reasons, we're grateful for you to be joining and partaking in tonight's uh, event where we hear from scholars who will help us think a little deeper and wider about the COVID crisis and lessons after the lockdown. If you wanna support our work to help bring the Catholic social teaching tradition into dialogue with the university and our broader culture, you can support our work today at www.lumenchristi.org slash donate. We engage broadly in the Catholic intellectual tradition in a series of upcoming events that we are sponsoring or organizing help to show that. Tomorrow, we are co-sponsoring an event presented by the Collegium Institute on Flannery O'Connor, Imagination, Solitude, and the Oddities of Life. Our web lecture series on reason and wisdom in medieval thought ends this week with a lecture by David Albertson on Nicholas of Cusa. And next week, we bring the wisdom of Augustine to bear on questions of catastrophe with an event on Christians in times of catastrophe, bearing into Augustine's City of God. You can find details about all of these events on our website at www.lumenchristi.org. I'm grateful to our co-sponsors tonight who helped extend the reach of our programming, America Media, Credo, the Beatrice Institute, the Collegium Institute's program on the philosophy of finance, the Nova Forum, the St. Benedict Institute, the Institute of Faith and Culture, and the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. Now, in an age where our discourse can be flattened by our political climate or even by important tools like social media, I'm grateful for our distinguished panelists who are able to help us go a little deeper on, economic and so, on our economic and social situation and to help us think about how ethical discourses like Catholic social thought can leaven our conversation. Um, I'm going to introduce our speakers in brief today since we have so many distinguished scholars, um, but you can go to our website, um, the event page for this for a full bio. Tonight's conversation will be moderated by Joseph Capizzi, who is the ordinary professor of moral theology at the Catholic University of America, where he is also the executive director of the Institute for Human Ecology. Kirk Dorn is the Henkels Family Collegiate Chair and Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Notre Dame. Mary Hirschfeld is Associate Professor of Economics and Theology at Villanova University, and one of the rare scholars out there who holds a PhD in both economics and theology. Father Paul McNellis, a Jesuit priest, holds the Robert Bendime Chair in Economic and Financial Policy at the Gabelli School of Business at Fordham University. And then finally, Dan Solmacy is Acting Director of the Kennedy Institute of Ethics and the inaugural Andre Helliger's Professor of Biomedical Ethics at Georgetown University. He also holds a PhD in philosophy and an MD degree. Um, one quick word before I invite our speakers today um, to turn their, um, to unmute themselves. At any time today, you can ask a question by making use of the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. If you're joining us by YouTube, you can send an um, email to um, info at lumenchristi.org with any of your questions. Um, 
Otherwise, uh, if you have any technical difficulties uh, joining us today, you can also always join us at the um, live streaming link that you can see at the top left of your screen. Um, otherwise, I invite our speakers to unmute themselves and to turn their cameras back on. And I will hand this conversation over to Joe, Joe Capizzi. Joe, thank you very much. And thank you to Michael, all thank Yeah, Michael, thank you very much. Um, thanks to uh, everybody who helped put this together tonight. And my gratitude to um, all of you who have shown up uh, today uh, to listen to this great conversation. We really have um, some wonderful people and some difficult issues to talk about. I think before we proceed, of course, we should note that, I mean, in addition to the fact that COVID has now taken the lives of more than uh, 105,000 Americans, I think we're approaching 110,000 uh, Americans who have died from COVID. Obviously, um, many of our cities and many of our communities are also um, dealing with um, the issues of racial injustice uh, and rioting and protesting um, associated with that. So to some extent, um, one crisis uh, you know, is intervening uh, on top of another. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I think it's important for us to keep our eyes on the ball of COVID. Uh, COVID has withdrawn from uh, the attention of much of the news today. Uh, you know, it's hard to find um, people writing articles on COVID or sort of presenting it to us. Uh, nonetheless, um, it's still out there and it's still spreading through some of our communities and it still poses a threat to certain uh, particular constituencies, including, of course, uh, the African-American community, which is bearing it in a different way um, than many of us are. But let's begin, um, panelists, uh, just sort of by taking stock, if we can, of where we are right now. I've been in part of conversations before. Um, Lumen Christie has hosted conversations around COVID. But now we're um, at least, you know, about a few weeks, maybe a couple, in a couple of instances, a couple of months um, past where we were before. And there does seem to be a sense uh, that aside from other events intervening uh, on COVID, that COVID itself um, is diminishing um, either in its virility uh, or in um, uh, its um, mortality uh, associated with it. I'm gonna throw this question first to Kirk, okay? Uh, but I, I invite you all to sort of um, to weigh in on it. Are we right to think that uh, we're sort of moving to a new phase of our experience with COVID that perhaps we're kind of getting on top of it as a nation? Just in the United States, uh, um, or is is that a false impression? Well, it's a good question. I I think that we're moving to a new phase in the sense that we've reached uh, a plateau of certain uh, epidemiological indicators, um, but we have not reached a new phase in the sense that people are no longer drastically socially distancing in a way that has dramatic effects. On the economy, in particular, uh, in a way that affects employment and unemployment uh, in a very dramatic way. I don't think we've moved to a new phase from that perspective. And I think that because, as I want to have a chance to talk about soon, because a lot of that social distancing is very voluntary uh, and is not, in fact, a function of government lockdowns, I think um, we're going to be addressing that aspect of the COVID crisis for some time. Great, great. Um, so, so you're, Kirk, you're saying then that to some extent, Americans either have habituated themselves into social distancing on their own, or um, you know, maybe even before the government was acting, we were already sensing there's something different here and needed to 
you know, protect ourselves by being, you know, careful about how we presented ourselves in public and that we're still doing this. Is that, is that? Absolutely. I mean, we have very good evidence that uh, foot traffic uh, to locations that are very important for employment in the service industries uh, was declining drastically before lockdowns happened. Um, and we also have evidence in countries where lockdowns never occurred of dramatic declines uh, in that type of activity. Um, and this has huge impacts on not just the service sector or the local service sector for, for retail and especially uh, food and, and uh, entertainment services, but it has ripple effects throughout the entire economy and is uh, a, a big part of why we have tens of millions of people unemployed. And I, I think the end of the lockdowns is unlikely to uh, completely eliminate that. I think it's plausible that the lockdowns may be responsible for, say, half of it, if you look at some of the recent uh, studies that have come out of South Korea. But uh, half of what we're experiencing in terms of economic costs and consequences is still a really, really big, big number. Paul, you seemed uh, sort of animated by um, Kirk's comments. Um, you, you more or less agree with that, that take? I, I, I do uh, from another perspective. Uh, and then, I mean, I guess, uh, uh, I guess I'm a Bayesian, but I also, uh, in terms of a statistics, but I mean the idea of Frank Knight and the distinction between uncertainty and risk. And uh, prior, uh, you know, when we first started the lockdown, there was massive uncertainty. We simply did not have data, you know, I mean, in terms of the testing and then also the isolation and how the disease was uh, affecting people, its mortality rates of those infected because we didn't know the numbers of people infected. Now, several months later, you know, our uh, medical researchers are getting information, maybe not as much from the U.S., from not as much testing, but they are getting it from other countries. So that now we're more able to make the risk return trade-offs because we know the likelihoods of who can get infected and who did not get infected. So I think that the initial reaction, whether it's official reaction or individual personal reaction, was, was a certain panic based on massive uncertainty. But once we are getting more information, we could make more rational risk return trade-offs about going back to work. But I also agree strongly with all of you that, I mean, one of the things is when we get massive unemployment, what we observed, especially in Europe, but we, I'm, I'm sure we will observe it here in the United States, is this issue of hysteresis. When people are thrown out of work because of a downturn, and then the, uh, there is recovery, many of those people never go back to work. You know, the idea is that firms recapitalize with labor-saving technologies. I think that's one of the facets that we will discover that people who have been working in the savings uh, in the service industries might, might find that their places of employment may adopt new, new mechanisms where either the older workers' skills were obsolete or are just not needed. Workers are not needed. They will be replaced. So I think that's uh, always the danger when you get these massive downturns that last a long time, uh, that this uh, what is initially seen as temporary unemployment for many people becomes permanent unemployment. I just want to second what Paul said. Uh, that last point is absolutely spot on and too few people have noticed it. I mean, the economy is not a, a machine that's organized in some sort of rational way. Uh, the economy is, is, is almost like a biological organism where there's a bunch of hidden connections that are very hard for people uh, to notice from the top down. Mm -hmm. Those hidden connections, though that social capital, if you will, where the small business owner knows this is the supplier to go to get this supply. These are the customers that like this kind of good or service. A lot of that social capital has broken down with many months of social distancing and huge uh, breakages in our supply chains. 
So you put those two things together, it's, it's by no means clear that uh, labor is gonna reallocate in some sort of very quick way. We have previous experience in this country of labor taking a very long time, many years to reallocate after severe downturns, downturns that were, have not been as severe as this one. So I, I caution everyone who thinks we've necessarily turned a corner on unemployment. I, I, we may not have. Dan, is that a hand? Yeah, there's, there's also certainly still a great deal of uncertainty ab about what we're facing. Um, and I think that that's, um, we don't want to oversell what medicine has done. It's amazing what we've learned so far, but we still don't know, for instance, whether the lockdowns and social distancing actually worked or whether this was simply the effects of the virus running its natural course through the population. Uh, we don't know that we're going to develop a vaccine. I mean. Um, there are lots of places where we've tried for decades, HIV, uh, malaria, and there are no vaccines. So there's no guarantee we will have a vaccine. The treatment we have, remdesivir, uh, is actually not very effective. Um, it may decrease the duration of illness for a short period uh, by a, a day or two, um, but it's not clear, it's certainly not a cure-all. Um, we, um, uh, we don't know how temperature affects this virus, whether we're going to have a lull during the summer and then um, have a, a recurrence um, in the fall again as well. And whether that combines with laxity in our social distancing practices so that it comes back again. I mean, there's still a huge amount of uncertainty um, and uncertainty even about the risk. We don't even actually know the denominator of the number of people who've been infected. Um, so we don't, uh, we can't even calculate um, so um, I just want to caution anybody who thinks that we know a lot, um, that there's still a lot of uncertainty. here. Great, great. Mary, please. Yeah, no, and I just um, kind of want to echo some of the points that have been made. Um, our reaction to this pandemic has been completely unprecedented, this idea of, of just massive shutdown, not just in our country, but around the world, and whether that was government imposed or voluntary. Um, it's, in addition to the uncertainties about the virus itself, uh, I'm just, I've always been surprised that people think the economy is going to just automatically rebound because we've just never shut everything down. And, and there's just, and the economy is a thick network of dominoes and connections, and we've broken a bunch of them, and we can't anticipate what those effects are going to be. Um, and, and, and this big economic downturn is on top of a political structure, as we're seeing right now, that's already very fragile. So, um, uh, yeah, that's the main point I wanted to make. Yeah. Yeah, you know, let me let me ask a question that maybe sort of um, broaches both the economic and the uh, medical or health uncertainties. Um, and it was raised or suggested, Mary, by your response right there. There's this sense that people like me, um, I don't have, I'm, I think everybody here has two degrees, but me, right? Um, you guys are, so um, that uh, we all either voluntarily or because, you know, we just, take the word of people you know who tell us what to do rather um radically uh unprecedentedly shut ourselves down and, and accepted a kind of shutdown of things to what extent would you guys trace that response to something like um the 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 deference given to certain kinds of expertise classes in our society either the expertise class of medicine or of you know, the medical and health communities or economics, um, uh, the political community, because it does seem unprecedented, like you said, Mary, that yeah. 
I mean, I was talking to my mother about this, really, you know, and I was asking her about the polio epidemics when she was a child, and she, you know, there was nothing like this. And yeah. what, what, yeah, why don't you begin? Yeah. yeah, I think Mary's absolutely right that this is unprecedented. And to be quite honest, I think that the, um, the, the experts we relied upon, the epidemiologists, people like Tony Fauci, who's a good friend, actually, um, are... Um, you know, we're doing what epidemiologists do, um, and generally they're trying to uh, contain um, a virus within a fairly small um, population or, or, or geographic area. Um, and, and they had never even, I think, thought about the economic consequences of, of, of making this um, a, a policy for, for entire nations or an entire world. Um, I think people just didn't even think that far ahead. And, and if one thing comes out of this um, conversation, I'm the only physician among all the economists, is that, that physicians and, um, and health, public health employees um, and experts and economists have to talk together about what we've done here so that we can find a better way for the future because um, this was a perfect example of unintended consequences. I don't think people thought about what would happen to the economy. Go Mary, yeah. Yeah, no, I think part of that is the rise and the weight we played on, place on expertise has, has um, distracted or caused us to miss the fact that you need wisdom. Wisdom is the integration of knowledge. So Dr. Fauci may be the expert on public health, but he doesn't know how to integrate that with what are the effects on the economy, what are the effects on psychology, what are the social effects. Um, so we've elevated a certain kind of technocratic knowledge at the expense of the kind of wisdom of response. But the other thing that's unprecedented is something has shifted in our culture in terms of our fear of, of viruses and contagion. Um, people have debated early on whether this was the flu or worse than the flu. Probably it's worse than the flu. I think worse than the flu won that debate. Um, but our, but our, res our response has been much more proportionate as if it had been the plague, which kills 25% of the population, not, mm -hmm. not this. Um, so in living experience, I was alive in 1968, and that flu was a very bad one. Maybe not as bad as COVID, but in shouting distance. And yeah, I, I, I don't even remember that. Uh, I, I would actually respectfully disagree with that. Um, I mean, it depends maybe on where you live and what the experience has been and maybe the experience from you know, the healthcare professional versus others. Um, certainly Washington was not as badly hit um, as New York City, um, but I have never in my 35 years of medical practice seen one infection affect so many people, bring so many of them into the hospital to the point that it really strained resources in really significant ways. So I would not you know, downplay this. This is more lethal, um, uh, at least for the people who are symptomatic that we know. Symptomatic COVID is more lethal than symptomatic flu. Um, uh, and it is more contagious. Um, the R naught or the you know, uh, speed with which it spreads through the, uh, the, the population um, by uh, contagion is greater. Um, so this is not, you know, I've, I lived through um, the HIV epidemic in, you know, and was working in Greenwich Village at St. Vincent's Hospital, the epicenter of it. Uh, the, the sort of way in which this came in a wave, um, a large demand it made on healthcare resources um, is really, I think, um, unprecedented, at least in the last 35 years in the United States. That much said, um, um, this is not Ebola. 
right? Um, um, and maybe we can learn from this so that if Ebola happens to go pandemic, um, we know how better to, uh, to respond. Yeah, no, and if I can just follow up real quick, I think that's a really good point, but in some sense you kind of make my point. We don't have living memory of anything this bad, so it seems horrible to us. In the meantime, our medical systems and our public health systems have gotten so much better that we expect a certain level of performance so that mm -hmm. when we have something like this, we're shocked and horrified. Mm -hmm. um, but we, I think we all agree that the Spanish flu was a worse pandemic mm -hmm. and, 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 it was, and it was terrible at the time. And I don't wanna minimize the human agony that, that goes with this or even the overrun medical systems and all of that. Um, but just the response was different because we had a different expectation of what to expect from medical delivery. So mm -hmm. with our high expectations comes our, our idea that this cannot happen and then our willingness to pay these very high prices to stop it. But Mary, I think that's a good point about uh, comparisons with the Spanish flu, which can be illustrative, both in terms of similarities and differences. I mean, it, one interesting uh, fact about the Spanish flu is that it killed over 600,000 people, according to the reports that I've read in the United States. And I think if you scaled that up according to the current population of the US, it would be equivalent to killing about 2.4 million people, which I believe is similar to the estimates that we were given at the start of the government lockdowns about what would happen as a basically worst case scenario of what would happen in the United States if we didn't do anything if there were no social distancing voluntary or otherwise. Um, well, that's what happened in the Spanish flu. And actually the, our economy by comparison did not suffer the same changes, largely because people didn't make the same changes to their behavior. But I think there's probably two reasons for that. One, which we've been mentioning, which is lockdowns and voluntary social distancing due to fear or perhaps, uh, perhaps sort of socialized behavior. But I think another reason is that we've had an unprecedented, and we haven't brought this up yet, unprecedented government response, both in the United States and in other uh, developed countries in terms of stimulating the economy. And the way in which they're stimulating the economy is in handing out a lot of cash. I mean, if you look at the extra $600 a week of unemployment benefits being given to the unemployed, um, there are many people who've joked, how am I gonna continue making a living after my unemployment runs out? Because then I'll have to go back to a job which will not pay as much as my unemployment. Um, that's almost certainly having an impact. Uh, we have good evidence that very, very generous severance packages, for instance, which is a related phenomenon, uh, cause people to delay substantially in finding a new job, even if they're legally required to find one. Um, so we're hitting both sides of the economy in strange ways here. And I think it's creating a very different uh, experience 100 years later. Can I, I'm gonna take us back real quick to, before we move forward on some of the things that you guys just touched, to, touched on to the expertise issue. Um, Mary made a distinction between wisdom and expertise. And uh, this, I think maybe Dan, you were the one who used the language unintended consequences, right? So as we look back uh, on this, uh, did, were we just vulnerable to allowing expertise uh, to mask itself as wisdom, to be seen as wisdom, and then sort of to follow um, expertise even though while it's, it is a good, right, and, it, and, it, and it's valuable, it is not the same thing as wisdom. Do we expose ourselves to unintended consequences? Is that gonna be a lesson of this experience of COVID and, and, and the way we responded to it? Is everybody confident about that? Paul, do you wanna weigh in on that since uh, you were quiet in the last round? Uh, I guess, yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, I, I, I just wanted to mentioned, I mean, relating to what you just said about these checks being given, this actually is, I guess, because, uh, and, and, and I guess because, you know, Lumen Christie is located at the University of Chicago, 
you know, a, a really classic University of Chicago monetary expansion. Although people are talking about the public debt, the, the transfers to the people were financed by debt, but that debt was bought by the Federal Reserve System. And so it's monetized. And similarly, the massive debts of European countries were bought by the European uh, Central Bank. So there is a massive growth of liquidity in the world financial si system. Now, unlike the last crisis in 2008, uh, where the bailout was to banks and non-banks financial intermediaries, most of this has been transfers to households, unemployed heads of households, members of households, as well as to small businesses. So I guess one of the other consequences that, I mean, certainly uh, Chicago friends, Chicago alumni friends like Jerry Dwyer of Clemson, James Lothian, my colleague at Fordham, Gabriel Fagan, a former uh, ECB official uh, now at Goethe University, is that we're looking at almost like a controlled experiment of uh, massive monetary expansion with inflation coming down the road. You know, now, not now, but you know, when people go back uh, post-crisis, post-COVID, I mean, they have a lot of money to spend. And, uh, and, and, and that's a classic, I mean, this is actually almost a classic monetarist experiment. So Paul, I wanna let everybody get to the wisdom question, which is probably yeah, more okay. interesting. And I know we don't have too much economics, but I, one thing I would say is that what I'm less concerned about unconditional cash transfers than I am concerned about conditional trash, cash transfers that are conditional on not finding employment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's go back to the wisdom thing real quick. Here's my, here's my fear, okay, right? Is that we were, we, were, we, were, we were ready to listen to the expert class and um, Tony Fauci, et cetera, convinced us, I mean, convinced us, to, or we were already doing it, Kirk, to your point, stay home, stay distant, don't, you know, don't mingle, et cetera. And now many of us, um, I mean, we can't even sort out among ourselves, is this the flu, is it the bubonic plague, right? Uh, the CDC says the fatality rate, you know, is whatever, right, you know, um, uh, is lower than we anticipated. I can't sort through this stuff. I'm not going to listen to anybody, right? At, you know, at this, right, why am I going to listen to anybody next time they tell me, you know, lockdown, here comes this nasty thing, you know, forget it. I'm, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust my intuition at this point because you guys passed off expertise as wisdom and it turned out there was nothing wise about bankrupting um, our economy for the sake of something that, you know, if, if you see it like the way Mary presented it, um, is a really bad flu, right? right it's, you know, again, whether that's accurate is another thing, but I can't tell if it's accurate is the relevant yeah. point. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, some, some of what you're uh, saying in terms of the possible public attitude about this um, happens actually in the clinical encounter too, right? There are patients who will say, sure. the doctors told me I was going to die and I didn't die, so now I'm no longer <laughs> going to listen to doctors at all. So we're, we're used right, to this. Right. Um, uh, but the patient now is the entire population for public health. It's not just an individual. And so the consequences are magnified for, for lots, of, uh, lots of folks. Yeah, I think there's a combination, getting back to some of what Mary was saying before, about the the extreme risk aversiveness of our society in general um, um, and this sort of faith in technocracy yeah, to sure. save us uh, from this um, that um, um, puts us in a, you know, a, a whipsaw between 
um, our fears, um, which may be out of uh, out of proportion, um, and then our turning to the uh, to the expertise to get us out of it, um, when in fact um, there probably is some kind of wise middle way that maybe we can learn sure, from sure. this pandemic. Um, I don't know that we needed to do a total lockdown. Maybe all the lockdown did was make people um, wash their hands more or something like that. We can find what suffices to bring the level of infection infections down to the point that they can be handled by the healthcare sure. system without wrecking the economy. Um, and, and again, I don't think there's any one person who has all that um, information. Um, and we need to talk to each other and try to work it out um, so that we learn from this for the next time. So I just wanted to follow up briefly on what you, uh, you, you said, Joseph and, and uh, Dan, that I actually have been very impressed by the early estimates of epidemiologists about various parameters related to its lethality and uh, how infectious it is. Uh, those early estimates had big ranges. And as we've gotten more data, uh, in fact, uh, the better estimates we have now are very much within the ranges that I was reading about uh, two, three months ago. So I, I don't think that they, I don't think that they, they failed in that sense. I think that uh, maybe a point that Dan raised earlier is, is perhaps the most relevant point. In order to attain wise policy, we kind of all need to talk to each other. And there's just been too much segmentation. Um, there you read on the internet, um, people saying, do we listen to epidemiologists or economists? To which I want to answer, yes. Yes. <laughs> well, we should, and, and, and we should be talking to each other more. Right, and this is a great place then, this notion of like integrating knowledge and so on to, to sort of direct our conversation towards the common good perhaps and, um, and, and our conception of health, right? So, so far we have also lapsed into um, the bias of thinking of health in terms of certain medical or epidemiological categories. And I, I mean, I, I ask all of you um, and maybe Mary first, um, is, is that an inadequate conception of health? And to what extent does, do we need to really expand our understanding of health and maybe Catholic, this is exactly the kind of place where Catholic social teaching can contribute to a conversation in our culture that looks at health more broadly than simply in terms of, you know, will my body live, survive, you know, this or that condition and so on. Mary, please. Yeah, no, I, <clears throat> I think this is a, definitely something that Catholic social thought needs to bring into the public conversation more and actually needs to develop more. So Catholic social thought talks a lot about the common good and, and how, to, how to have concern for the poor and it has a variety of principles like that. Um, but what we really need is a thicker conception of what that good is, what that common good is. Um, in our modern society, it's a liberal society. We don't have consensus about what goods we should pursue. And so we've tended to emphasize what I call instrumental goods, wealth on the one hand and health on the other. And, um, and, and that's how the debate's been framed, right? Either you want to kill grandma or you want to destroy the economy and leave millions of people unemployed and people fight and they polarize. Um, but we don't ask, what is the wealth for? And we don't ask what is, what's the human aspect of our wealth getting activities. So we don't think in terms of the impact it has on workers who lose their jobs or what does it mean to be a productive human being in terms of the quality of your own life as a person. And on the health side, it's just a very thin idea about health. Um, we've cut off a lot of the things that make life worth living. Um, 
social interaction is incredibly important for human flourishing. I'm one of the 34 million Americans who live alone, so I've sheltered alone. And um, it's just been devastating, right? And, and I can think about the children who haven't been able to go out and play, the social and psychological development that's missing out because they've been cut off through these months. Um, I just think we need a much thicker conception about what the good of life is. And the last thing I'm gonna say, I've been just, my heart has been completely broken. Um, in order to protect the vulnerable who tend to be mostly the elderly, we've isolated them. When loneliness is right. a key problem in all. Mm -hmm. and, and especially in the first wave, and I understand we were in the first wave when we were panicking. We were taking people at the end of their lives who were dying, very old people who were at the end of their lives dying and intubating them and having them die alone without being able to have family around. Funerals have not been allowed to take place. There's just a huge tragedy about the thickness of life that's been sacrificed. Sure, sure. Sure. in the name of trying to save lives. Anybody else want to know? Well, I would just say that these are genuinely difficult questions. I mean, uh, um, the trade-offs, if you want to phrase it that way here, are, are really painful and difficult. Um, so uh, young people who want to have a chance to interact socially uh, actually have the career they were trained for uh, without suffering the consequences that we know happen to people who start their careers in bad recessions. Who want to have a chance to date then eventually get married and have a family all of those people have been heavily affected by massive social distancing but on the other hand you know if if the counterfactual is a couple million people dying that's also a big cost and i i think we all agree that that's a big cost and i hope that we're not letting the audience think that we don't agree that uh with that and so if these are very difficult things uh it's very difficult to measure um just what we should do here i i i think how should i put it I don't think that there's a technocratic answer to these questions. I don't think there is, is I think they're, um, they're incommensurable goods. Um, the good of living an extra few years um, versus the good of living one more year really, really well. I don't know, I don't know how to measure that. Yeah, I, I, I think there are lots of competing conceptions of the common good that you see um, out in discourse about uh, COVID. COVID almost becomes a Rorschach test for people's sort of views to be expressed. And um, for, for many people there, and the economists will be familiar with this, it's, it's really a utilitarian kind of view of the common good. It's the sum of the individual goods. And you see people, you know, um, ethicists, for instance, trying to ration ventilators and saying, well, we should do it according to life years, and we should not ventilate people who are mentally retarded because of their low social productivity, et cetera. Uh, those voices have been out there. There's a kind of neoliberal view of the common good as being only the things that we have in common and many uh, like, you know, air and water and things like that. And everything else is, um, uh, is just an individual good and that's all there is. And, um, and those are some of the people you see writing op-eds that sort of say, let it rip. You know, um, I'm, I'm healthy, I'll take care of myself and let go that way. You've got totalitarian views of the common good where it's the state that controls everything and you saw that played out in China, right? So, so they control the virus, but um, you know, it's at great cost to human freedom um, to do that. Um, but I think all of us here, I suspect, have um, a, a more Catholic sensibility about what the common good is in a, in a way that I would call integral, um, in which um, the good of the individual is in part constituted by the good of the whole, um, and that the flourishing of the whole is part of my flourishing, and um, also the 
of the whole recognizes my individuality and rights and need to need to flourish. That conception of the common good is difficult to communicate in a world that wants simple answers. Um, but I think the wisdom is in that sort of more integral sense of the common good that may give us a way forward. Well, but, but, but so just following up then and on that point and perhaps to push um, you know, Kirk and maybe you as well, Dan, is it fair to say that while obviously these are difficult questions, right? But even the way um, Kirk, you began to respond to Mary was by sort of suggesting a kind of, again, health wealth dichotomy, right? Rather than saying, uh, or maybe asking ourselves, did we, to what extent did we actually consider the deprivations that uh, Mary alluded to, for instance, just the deprivations that would be borne by those who live alone or by the elderly, to what extent were they factored into this decision about how to respond to the disease? Um, or should they be, right? I mean, it's possible they shouldn't be at all. I mean, I think as Catholics, we, you know, going back to Dan's point and Mary's, a thicker conception of the common good or of what health consists in, what the flourishing of the human being consists in would suggest these things need to be factored in, right? And they need to be named, not merely sort of just assume that they're part of, you know, what it means to live another year, right? Right. Yeah, please, Eric, so, I kind of directed that we, at you. What yeah. we need to do is we need to move beyond a notion of a health-wealth dichotomy in the first place. <laughs> because uh, health and wealth are intimately related in numerous feedback loops. And there's no, we can't really view our response to this as some sort of uh, optimization of a static dichotomy between health and wealth. Uh, really what we're trying to do is we're trying to un understand a very subtle sense, a set of responses that are rippling through our economy, rippling through people's uh, emotional lives, rippling, rippling through, through everything. And they're all affecting each other at the same time. And that's what makes this super complicated. If it was simple trade-offs between health and wealth, it would be easier, but we don't have simple trade-offs between health and wealth. Um, <laughs> the other thing that makes this complicated and we need to move beyond is this notion that, well, we're gonna save you know, however many trillions of dollars by doing a lockdown versus some unnamed counterfactual, which is usually doing nothing at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that's easy. If, if, the, if the response is, look, we can either do literally nothing, like just bone stupid activities, all, all, on, all of us are boneheaded. And, and that's one option. And the other option is a complete social distancing. Nobody gets together in groups bigger than two people. You're staying in your household, uh, UK style lockdown. If those are the two dichotomies, then if those are the two options, then, it's, then well, it simplifies the world uh, beneath uh, the actual complication that's there. And in reality, there's many, many other things and many gradations that we could do. Uh, we could change who, which portions of the population are being locked down or experiencing social distancing. We uh, could expand testing in ways that China has demonstrated can be done. They just tested in a period of a few days, 11 million people in one region. Um, there's a lot of other options other than those two. And so that's the two points I think we need to address. First of all, there's no dichotomy between health and wealth. And second of all, this stupid internet argument that we're not having, but people have had, other people have had on the internet between health on one side and uh, the economy on the other doesn't make any sense. <laughs> does, the, does the common good do work then? Like, like, like put, let, me, let me put it like sort of bluntly. Imagine I'm Donald Trump, you know, you guys are my committee, you know, Dan is Dr. Fauci. You're Munchen, I guess. Um, Mary, you get to be Dr. Burks, you know, um, and I guess that makes Paul uh, Pence. Would we would we have would we have counseled something 
different based on, you know, a, a kind of integrated conception of the human being and, and human and, and what health consists in and so on? Or would we have more or less, because of uncertainty and so on, been in the same place? Uh, Dan, you looked like you wanted to respond. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's it's so Too hard, hard to, to, it's so hard to say through the retrospectoscope, you know, I think that um, people were expecting things to be worse than, uh, than they turned out to be. In New York, it came pretty close to being what people thought might happen in the rest. In, if that, if New York had happened in the entire country, we'd be in you know, really difficult um, shape. So, um, and, and, you know, the, the response evolved, right, um, over a rapid period of time. I mean, even Fauci, um, Fauci's wife was at a conference with me in early March, and we weren't wearing masks, and we were just elbow bumping, you know? <laughs> uh, this is, um, you know, so, so uh, I think it's, it's, it's really hard to blame people previously. I think what we have to do is say what we know now, what we should <laughs> be doing now on the basis of the better information that Paul was talking about uh, before that yeah, we yeah. we have now, and what we can learn from this um, for the um, for the future. Great, great. Yeah. So uh, another another aspect of the common good, of course, opens us outside the United States and the experiences outside the United States, and then of course within the United States as well. So there are two yeah. issues here. One is something I think Dan you alluded to before when you talked about how differently this is bearing on based on where you live, right? And that's just the inter-U.S intra-US issue, right? That certain portion, certain populations in the United States are bearing the burdens of this, merely the illness on the one hand, and then of course the economic effects on the other, right? Very differently um, than our others. So perhaps Dan, you could speak to or begin a conversation about that. And then the second would be the global aspect of this, right? This is a global pandemic. It's implicating virtually every country. Um, it implicates foreign policy, you know, et cetera. Um, and, are there le maybe that one question is, are there lessons to be learned on what we've seen in other countries and how they responded? So maybe we'll just start there first to sort of, Dan, if you don't mind, the intra-US, you know, um, yeah. you know, the conception of the common good that might inform the way we think about how COVID is sort of expressed itself in our country and then the global kinds of concerns. So Dan, thank yeah. you. Well, I, I think you're right to point out that there's no one-size-fits-all approach, and, and the people who are asking for that from the president, um, you know, I think we're, and from the federal government in general, we're simply wrong. I mean, the way this affects uh, Montana is not the same as the way it affects New York City, um, and yeah. population density, the maybe even the subtypes of the virus that are circulating in different areas <laughs> need different responses, and so... Uh, you know, the principle of subsidiarity, for instance, may make some sense in, in, a, in its applicability here that um, um, there are local solutions to this depending on the way the virus is playing out in, um, in, in different places. Similarly, um, uh, you know, I, th I think we can anticipate your next question with the world, um, you know, the uh, countries will differ dramatically. Um, uh, and uh, Epidemiologists and ethicists in South Africa, for instance, are saying we don't we don't have the healthcare infrastructure to take care of all these people, and it is better to let the you know, the virus rip through the, the population um, and develop herd immunity, and that may be better um, for a country that doesn't have the kind of healthcare infrastructure we 
have. So I, I think we um, err if we think that the, the solution to this is going to be one size fits all. Great, great, thank you. Anybody else on? on, on I, have a, I have a couple things. I just want to follow up on the subsidiarity question. Because um, part of our imp in, impulse towards this expertise or so on is to play the, place a lot of weight on these national public health organizations and also the World Health Organization. Um, I've been following this pandemic since early January and the World Health Organization was very slow to name it a pandemic. And part of the reason they were so slow to do so is because they thought we should all follow China's model and, the, and, and with the testing and tracking and all the rest at the beginning. And so they kind of had this one size fits all attitude without, it seemed to me at the time of recognizing that not all countries could do what China did or what South Korea did, because we all have different state capabilities. We all have different civil, you know, what the, what the population can tolerate, different cultural practices and so on. Um, and even locally, like if we devolved to the extent that we devolved coming down to the other level um, within states, like my governor uh, Wolf shut down the whole state really quite abruptly because we had a big problem in Philadelphia, but that had a very different or bad impact on people in these small counties up in Northwest Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. um, so subsidiarity is just this great principle that says there's something that there can be more responsive to local circumstances, the more you're willing to devolve things. Um, but the other thing that if we're talking about the global consequence, um, one of the things that's hard about common good is we all kind of do our own thing and then there's these unintended consequences and we don't think about it. Um, we, in this country, we've almost entirely had the debate in terms of the trade-offs within this country without thinking about the downstream impact that our choices are going to have on other countries. Um, the slowdown in the global economy that's coming is going to have devastating impact on the poor around the world. And I don't think we've given enough attention to that fallout. Yeah, that's a great point, Mary. Um, I subsidiarity is a great principle, right? Because as I always remind my students, it, it, tend, it reminds you to look down, but it also reminds you to look up, right? And I think that's what both you and Dan are saying is there, there is a sort of, right, the downward effect on the local communities, but there's also the upward kind, kinds of issues and effects um, on the global, even the one you just touched on, the, the, you know, the burden that this is going to place on global poverty um, are going to be enormous, clearly, but they're also going to be placed on the poor in the United States as well, right? So, I mean, this is this is you know related to in some ways perhaps the the protests we're seeing in the streets right now that there are certain communities that are bearing the burden of this disease very differently than mine, you know, or most of ours, right? Most of us, it's DoorDash and you know and and movie streaming, and, you know, etc. Um, to occupy our times, and meanwhile, sure. truckers are still trucking, and right the you know, and people are still cooking, and you know, working in you know the meat factories and so on. Uh, there, we've all read this. You guys are the economists. I'm not. There are going to be economic winners during COVID, and then there are going to be economic losers. And some of the winners are obvious. They're the they're the big, right, um, e-based companies and then some of the losers are obvious that there's a small you know smaller businesses and so on uh how does that or should that also be informing decisions should we've anticipated some of these we keep calling them unintended consequences i just worry that kind of gets us off the hook a little bit quickly okay. couldn't they have been anticipated to some extent if we were thinking through at least some of us were thinking through the way the common good is understood in catholic thought 
Paul, do you want in on the? Yeah, I, yeah I, I, I take your point, but I mean, I think it just came so fast and so unexpected that it was really hard to think through these. So I, I don't think I want to be yeah. too critical yeah. of policymakers, any of them. And, and, and there's different responses around the world. But, I, I, you know, Jesus Fernandez Villaverde also uh, addressed this question. He took it in terms of an intergenerational uh, inequity that to preserve yeah, the people over 60, the under 40 generation bore the burden strongly in, ter in terms of unemployment. And especially for the, you know, uh, less educated people under 40, you know, who could not stay home and live stream who worked in stores. It's been a very, very harsh experience. And, and I guess one of the things, and I guess addressing this issue, I keep thinking of the analogy of post-World War II. You had the young generation in Korean War fought the war while the elders stayed at home. But afterwards, there was some forward thinking, you know, to give these people benefits afterwards. You know, like there was the GI Bill of Rights and then massive construction projects, you know, the uh, state highways, interstate highway system, St. Lawrence Seaway but different ways to get the work for the people who bore the burden of the war, you know, had these new benefits, you know, they didn't go back, uh, in, in, you know, to, to move forward with their lives. And maybe this is what we have to think, that the people who have been bearing the cost of COVID, the under 40 generation who've been hit very hard, yeah, you know, should be given some very special benefits. Now, again, how is that going to be done? You know, uh, the other issue, I guess I, I was in contact with Jesus about this, I mean, I guess the over 60 generation represents the United States about almost 24% of the population, but their voter turnout is 80%, extremely high. So in terms of, you know, readdressing, you know, uh, a, a re redistributing towards the under 40 generation from the older generation is always going to be politically difficult. But I think that's where we should face this, this addressing this, uh, the, the inevitable inequities that the winners should try to compensate the losers from this pandemic, because the losers, you know, bore the price to keep them alive. You know, I think partly. So, so one one good story to illustrate, I think, the ways in which uh, Kirk's point about the connection between health and wealth, uh, uh, and to make it in a global context, is one I was told about what happened to the Mayan population. Um, many Mayans work. Um, for the resort areas in Co Cozumel, right? Um, and an Italian cruise ship came in full of people who were infected, infected the workers um, who were uh, in the town. Um, then because of the, uh, in the COVID pandemic, the ships stopped coming. So all the workers were laid off. They went home to their Mayan villages um, and infected the villages dramatically. So there, yeah. you can't, you know, script that ahead of time and sort of think that's what's going to happen. But these connections are profound and subtle and um, and global, um, and um, and and no one could have anticipated that. Um, but we need to learn from that um, for um, for facing this, the future of this crisis and the, and other crises in the future. Yeah. Anybody else on these issues of sort of like the global or the more local common good. Um, I would just yeah, point out that yeah. we're used to thinking about questions of the common good and many questions in Catholic social teaching in light of what should authority figures with coercive power in governments be doing. Right. And I just to reiterate how I was hoping to reframe things a bit at the start of the conversation, we by now have very good economic evidence 
that at least half of these costs and consequences are related to individuals. Not that we shouldn't be talking about lockdowns. I mean, 40, 45% yeah. of the costs are due to lockdowns. We should still be talking about lockdowns. But we need to we need to think about an interesting question, which I haven't heard many experts in Catholic social thought address, at least I haven't personally, which is what does Catholic social thought have to say about social movements uh, in the age of the internet, uh, about um, a, uh, a viral desire, if you will, to be part of the team that protects the old by not engaging in, in many uh, economic activities that would otherwise be very beneficial to the economy. Uh, what do we, what does Catholic social teaching have to say about that? I don't know. Great. Mary. No, I think culture is a missing um, level of analysis in a lot of our thinking about this, working through these social movements and these social perspectives. But we did have this strong sense of solidarity that played out in the social distancing. A lot of people were doing it not because they were personally afraid, but because they cared about other people. It was really very moving to see them do that. Um, but we could have extended that vision to also bear in mind that the social distancing was having these other consequences, right? So I don't know if people were thinking enough about the, the businesses they were no longer you know, offering their custom to, right? Or thinking about the downstream effects on the rest of the world. And, and I just wonder if, if, the, if the culture could have arrived at a better balance if we'd been thinking about our solidarity on, on all these dimensions. But I think part of what happened is it's easy to think about one virus and lockdown prevent the spread. It's a lot harder to think, oh, wait a minute, my pet sitter who just lost all my business because I'm not traveling anymore is probably not getting any business. What do I do about that, right? And also, the, the polarization of our culture, Mary, uh, is perhaps responsible for the dysfunction in which uh, some people thought it was their job to only think about some costs and consequences and other people thought it was their job to only think about other costs and consequences. But very few people thought it was their job to think about both. So that's the problem. And, and Mary, I was very moved by your talking about the lonely deaths of the, uh, of the elderly. Mm -hmm. um, and it struck me that um, one of the reasons that the virus um, has spread and killed so many people in the United States is the way we do all already treat our elderly. Um, not only are they lonely, um, but they're lonely together, iso isolated together in nursing homes, which is the exactly perfect place for the virus to spread. Um, and so our, the, the way we treat the elderly um, at our baseline within the culture has had an enormous impact um, on the way the virus has um, differentially affected the elderly. Great stuff, great stuff. Yeah, I'm sorry, Mary, go on, please. No, One can only hope that going forward, we'll think a lot harder about that last stage of life and how to make it good for people. So. Yes, it's nice to, you know, nice to sort of sum up things with a little hope, right? Um, let's turn a little bit to some of the questions. We've got a great audience and, and I see there's you know tons of questions already. So if you've got a question you wanna ask it, please don't hesitate to type it into the Q&A box. If you're here with us on Zoom or to email Michael, as he uh, advised at the beginning, um, if you're watching on the YouTube. So all of us, I believe, work at universities. One of our questions asks a great question. Um, would it be wise, is it going to be wise for universities or colleges to be opening up this fall? So I guess put on for a second, put your hat on, you know, your John Jenkins or, um, you know, uh, whomever else, right? Your John Garvey in my case. Uh, what do you think? Do you open for the fall? And by that, let's assume we mean on-campus students in the classrooms in some way being educated by faculty. 
I just want to say that I 100% agree with the strategy that uh, Father Jenkins has applied at Notre Dame. I thought it was bold. I thought it was creative. And, and basically, I, I would say that his answer to, to your question was, yeah, we, we will reopen and we will open with people, as many people as are willing to come here together. Uh, but we're going to change the way we do some things on campus to mitigate infection concerns. And I just, there are many reasons why I think that's the right solution. But I think one of them, which hasn't been uh, spoken about enough, is that truly, uh, maybe, maybe Dan will agree with me or disagree with me, but, but truly, I think the risk to 19-year-olds is truly too low um, to say that there's no way we can open up a college campus full of 19-year-olds. Um, and so yeah, from an epidemiologic yeah. point of view, the, the risk really isn't to the 19-year-olds. It's to the people who are the professors who are teaching them. It's to the uh, people who are serving them in the cafeteria. Um, it's to the people they visit um, when they come back home for fall break, whatever. So, so I think- you got rid of fall break. Yeah, right. <laughs> you did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's good. You know, I, I, I do think that um, I, I would like to wait and see what happens over the summer before uh, I, I may, would make a final judgment on this. Because again, we don't, I don't think, have enough information yet about whether um, every place will come down to a low enough level that we can find ways to um, open up places like universities again in a way that will be um, safe for the general population. I, I agree with you, the risk to individual students is not so great, um, sure. but the sure. risk of them spreading it to other people is, is what's most significant. Well, that's why we change what we do though, Dan. We, we, we're changing every single thing we're doing at Notre Dame to address those very concerns. They're, they're exactly the concerns that we have here at the university and I agree with you 100%, but we're not gonna do business as usual when we open up in the fall. If and when we open up, we're going to change, uh, and we already are changing everything we do to help protect exactly the populations we're worried about. And, and the one yeah, feature man. of the Notre Dame plan that I think is needs to be called out is they're, they're, they're starting early, so there will be no fall break, there will be no thing, and so they're going to wrap up at Thanksgiving. So there shouldn't be this back and forth between the student population at home. And then mm -hmm. it seems to me the problem of how do you protect vulnerable faculty or staff is, is an easier one to handle than the fear of sending a bunch sure. of sick kids back home. Dan, Dan, can I ask a quick follow-up question um, to you? Just, uh, I, I think maybe we moved too fast over sort of a technical, like, what did we learn question. Mm -hmm. um, are we more confident that when people get this, like, so the vulnerable um, person serving food to the students or the professor or so on, do, are we more confident about our capacity to treat these people now? Or still, is it really no. just, you know, we just don't yeah. know? Yeah, there's still no effective treatment. I mean, a minim, there is a minimally effective treatment, remdesivir, um, um, and some hope for vaccines, but no, uh, certainly no guarantees. Um, and um, and even when, I, I should say, even when young people get this disease, it's no picnic. Um, and our, in Georgetown University Hospital, five of our um, uh, house officers, interns and residents um, on the front line using the protective gear you know, got sick. Fortunately, none of them, you know, had to be hospitalized, you know, but it was worse than the flu, you know, worse yeah, than yeah. the swine flu that, you know, is part of my experience as well. This is not an easy disease, even for, um, uh, uh, for uh, many young people, not, uh, you know, there are, again, we don't know how many people um, are asymptomatic and, and infected, and there may be a large number. We don't know why 
some people are more symptomatic than others, and we don't fully understand why it is that it uh, that some people actually are so overwhelmed by the disease and uh, and ultimately succumb to it. It probably is more of an overreaction of the immune system to the infection than it is the uh, the number of viral particles replicating in their bodies um, uh, as a as a factor in itself. So there's still a lot we don't. So I, I want to press Daniel a, a little bit just about the lot that we don't know. Um, what, what is your take, uh, Dan, on on just how creative we can uh, be if we're a college and, we, and we're interested in reopening? Because that's there's yeah, too many reasons why uh, it might make sense to do so, um, and to, at least to want to do so. What's your take on how creative we could be? You're a little cautious in responding to me there, which I respect. Um, yeah. But um, can we afford to not try to be creative? And bold yeah. coming yeah. up with yeah. I mean, no, We no, spent the first I, minutes talking about how we're destroying the livelihoods of tens of millions of people. And it's going to take maybe 10 years to get some of those people back into the labor force, during which they're going to become addicted to drugs uh, and all the things that happen to people true, who, true. who are, have long term unemployment. And we know it happens. True, true. Can we really no, no, afford I, I, to just say, let's not open up higher education because even creative <laughs> solutions are still going to infect the 65 year old professor? Or can we say, hey, let's come up with something creative that will protect the 65-year-old professor, but allow the 40-year-old professor to still teach, and the 27-year-old professor to still hang out with the students sometimes, and the students to be together on campus? I mean, what's your take? Yeah, I, I was, don't um, uh, misunderstand me by raising the questions about caution about opening a saying is a, that I don't think we can. Um, I, um, I don't know that um, the conditions are going to what the conditions will be right. by uh, August. I agree September. with that. I agree um, with that. And, yeah. um, and so even what Notre Dame is doing, I hope, um, is provisional, that it may be that it needs to be changed yeah. if things, if the situation around changes, uh, changes dramatically. It is. Yes, I think that we um, need to try to find creative solutions and continue to learn as much as we can and maybe experiment a little bit. Uh, Notre Dame doing something, maybe somebody else doing something else so that we can uh, can learn a, a bit more. Maybe some other universities going totally, um, you know, staying totally online. Um, I don't think we can stay in total lockdown. It's, um, it's crazy um, to think that we could do it for uh, forever. Um, again, the paradigm that the epidemiologists were using um, is a very different one. It's Sort of, you know, it's a short-term localized problem with a small population, um, and you, you just can't generalize that to the, in, to the entire world. So I'm, I'm with you that we need to try to find creative solutions. Um, I just don't know that we know enough right now to say exactly what those creative solutions are, um, nor do we have a good enough sense of what the late summer is going to look like um, to say that even the experiments that Notre Dame is uh, uh, suggesting will be will be feasible. I agree 100%. Makes sense. Yeah, hey, I have another question here. Um, this is from I believe a woman, um, Sarah Bond. She asks whether the uh, or she says the lockdown approach shows a great respect for the individual because it shows concern for each person and not wanting anyone to die. And her family, they are sheltering uh, at home because they're protecting their 86-year-old mother. Doesn't this show a Christian view of the dignity of the human person? She would like um, you guys to address uh, the desire that fewer people die versus looking at uh, human beings en masse. So probably, right, our conversation has more or less been abstract in terms of human beings. And Sarah is saying, look, you know, what I'm doing here is trying to actually protect my mom. 
right? Uh, uh, thoughts on that? I mean, that's it's obviously the case, right? That they have a, a charity, a concern for their mother. Anyone? Uh, yeah, I'll, Mary or Paul? Yeah, Mary. No, that's just the hardest thing ever because we do love our 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 vulnerable people. I have an older aunt and uncle who are the most important people in the world to me, and I want them to stay safe. Um, and and I don't know how to balance this out. So individuals certainly have concern for people immediately in their lives, and then we have a general concern for the older people who, or the, just anybody who would be seriously impacted by the virus. The trouble is um, we're not seeing the unseen devastation that's happening, mm -hmm. right? So as you protect your mother, which is right and good and charitable and loving, the unintended consequence of that might be that you know the person who used to wash your dishes at the restaurant has been locked up without a job and has given up and has fallen into despair. There, there's just these, there's gonna be other, other lives are gonna be lost. We're just not seeing them in the New York Times listed out name by name. Um, so it's just what yeah, makes it's so difficult. hard. Yeah. yeah, it's so difficult. And Anybody again, else? Again, I think that, uh, you know, Kirk has been good on pressing us not to see this in terms of either ors, um, that, I, that I think that um, there are ways to project grandma, right? Um, that maybe uh, aren't perfect, um, but we make a good effort at doing that um, in ways that don't have the devastating effect on the economy that we've sure. seen by the um, total lockdown solution that, that we've um, uh, chosen uh, as, our, as our main tool um, in fighting the epidemic. Yeah, and, and it, uh, relatedly, um, perhaps another unseen effect that maybe Sarah's even experienced this, I know we've ex experienced it in my own family, is um, there's so much uncertainty about how to live and proceed that within families you can get arguments about exactly how or should we be protecting mom or our aunts or whatever. So, uh, you know, I, I'm sure there are other people who are experiencing, you know, real real tensions or worse, you know, uh, in their homes over you're too cavalier about the disease, you know, or, you know, you're too rigorous and so on. Um, there's just, so, it's just so utterly complicated. Now to that point, another questioner <laughs> asks us a very strong um, question. Uh, this is from Ben Peterson, I believe. Um, and it's from Mary and Dan. Uh, more or less, does Catholic social teaching have anything to say except, wow, that's tough. Um, like I just said, uh, so, I mean, right, we could all say, hey, common good, we should think in terms of the common good and subsidiarity and solidarity, then we all kind of come down on, well, geez, it's kind of hard, right, um, can't help you, uh, or do we actually have things that, that are helpful, are these principles helpful in some way, and that was directed at Dan and Mary, so, Dan, why don't you give it a shot? Yeah, well, I, I think it, I think it does, um, in, in many kinds of ways. I mean, the, the first, when you think about the, what I was talking before about the conceptions of the common good, right, and the ways in which those mm -hmm. compete with each other and the way um, that we even frame the questions. Um, so one issue that's uh, that I've been you know, grappling with, fortunately, um, it's become abstract because the first wave passed and we didn't have to ration is how to ration ventilators, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there are ways in which um, you know, Catholic social teaching would reach out um, to the, uh, the marginalized and the vulnerable and say that they're not to be um, um, immediately excluded for the sake of a utilitarian common good, which is simply true, an true, true. You know, compilation of the, the mean good of, um, of, of all the lives. So people yeah. who 
thinking about rationing ventilators by saving the most life years um, rather than the most lives, um, which um, automatically becomes a way, I think, of discriminating against the elderly and the disabled. Um, and, and so I think we would reach out to them and say they are part of us and their, um, uh, their flourishing is part of, uh, of our flourishing. But it would also teach us to do so in a way that, again, um, we think about the policy implications um, uh, economically um, would lead us to think also about our solidarity um, with the um, you know, recent immigrant who's washing dishes in the restaurants that we're not going to anymore and to be inclusive enough in our approach to say that their interests are part of my interests as well um, and not um, um, again, simply put all our eggs in the basket of grandma um, or in the economy, but, uh, but try to find a way in which we're integrating, uh, integrating both. And I think what you've seen is polarity, the kind of arguments you were talking about and families are, you know, who will wear a mask and who won't, right? <laughs> right. And right, it's, it's right. a political statement. Um, um, you know, we need to find, um, again, a middle ground, which would be, I think, um, more the, the sort of Catholic integrated understanding. Mm -hmm. um, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. Um, me? <laughs> yeah, they were addressing it to you as well, so. Okay, yeah, I, I, just the way the screen works, it was hard to tell. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think Catholic social thought gives us principles that we can all identify about concern for the common good, and principles of solidarity on the one hand, and subsidiarity. We've been invoking these over the course of the conversation. Um, but the fact of the matter is the world is really complicated. And so a lot of it has to do with the individual's discernment about how do I respond to the immediate set of circumstances I have around, like, you know, in the situation, is, is it subsidiarity that's the more important principle or is it solidarity? Um, the discernment of the common good in general requires a prudential, a, an exercise in the wisdom of discerning what makes life worth living. And in light of those goods, how do I, how do I make these particular mm -hmm. choices? Um, so there's a little bit of a call for epistemic humility that like I, you can't turn to an expert even on Catholic social thought to say here's the right answer. It says here's some guidelines or frameworks um, and, and, and then pray your way into it or, or, or just, you know, open your heart to what the situation calls for. Um, and the other thing that the Catholic tradition offers that has gotten very little attention um, it's just a reminder that um, this world is not the only one that there is. And the great thing about Catholic social thought is it reminds us that we care a lot about this world. But the reason I mention that is um, mortality rates are still 100% for everybody, no matter what. Every life will have death and suffering in it, no matter what. That's just part of the human condition. And I think part of what's happened in the modern world is we have some idea that we can can get away from all of that and control it. And, that, and that's what leads to these horrible trade-offs and these horrible tensions. And I think if we could just bring it down a notch saying, I love people and I want them to live and every life matters. And that's really, truly important. Um, but I can't fix every suffering and I can't prevent every death. And just to have that judgment and, and just do it with a full heart of love because we want to accompany people in this life as well as we can. But just also remember that at the end of the day, we. You know, it's, it's not our show. We don't get to fix everything. Yeah, great stuff. Paul, and um, perhaps um, Kirk, you as well, we have a question here um, about economics. 
Um, it's related, uh, I think, to uh, a little bit of a conversation we had earlier tonight. This is from my colleague, David Cloutier at Catholic University. He asks, will the crisis lead to the consolidation of economic power in larger and more distant businesses? And should Catholic social teaching have anything to say about this? Okay, so Paul and Kurt, yes, does it lead yes. to that? I think, yes, and uh, yes. Yeah, I think there will be some a movement towards such consolidation, and certainly we should be talking about it from the perspective of CSD. <laughs> It won't be a complete consolidation, obviously, but small businesses are getting affected uh, in ways that large businesses can avoid. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's an excellent point. I agree. And I think that, uh, I, I mean, we, we've seen this movement. And I think one of the things that I think we're listening to all of you that I've learned from this is to, we in economics really have to respect heterogeneity in society, heterogeneity of households, heterogeneity of firms, heterogeneity of uh, 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 governments, different types of governments, and really uh, take that very, very seriously. And I think this one size fits all, that there is some type of market, there's some type of, no, there's heterogeneity. And I think that's, that's what we want to encourage and, and, and to stop this, this sort of increasing monopolization and concentration, especially in industry. I guess one of the things uh, I also want to get back to it is that individuals who decide to go to, back to work or not, one of the things is, will we learn more in a few months? Who is more vulnerable or not? I mean, we all have pre-existing conditions. Is there a way doctors will be able to give information to individuals, heads of households, whether they are at higher risk or lower risk, say myself as a university professor, going back into a classroom. So we could tell our colleagues, you know, maybe you should just do your course online. Other colleagues, you could have a regular course. I think the idea of respecting the heterogeneity of people both in their health, but also the, the way they live and, uh, and, 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 and also how they conduct their business is going to be very, very important. Yeah, there's, there, there is a lot already known about um, predisposing conditions that make people vulnerable. And I think that's better known than lots of other things. Um, so age, um, hypertension, diabetes, um, um, okay. lung disease, heart failure, um, in, immunosuppression. Um, so we can um, give that kind of advice. Um, but uh, the uh, economists um, uh, um, will agree that, that you know, people can make um, reasonable choices in local situations. And I can tell you within Georgetown, um, as much as I tried to volunteer, my colleagues said, I'm over 60. They weren't putting me in the front lines in the hospital. You know, I have seen patients um, in the outpatient setting, um, um, and it's been mostly the residents who've gone in and you know done the done the testing. Um, so people have had you know local wisdom um, in terms of saying who's more vulnerable and who's not, and um, and help to sort of sort that out um, on the base. But but they need the information. You're right, and we need to make sure that that's conveyed to people as we develop plans. Great, great. We have a, a different sort of question here, but it's probably one that um, we all could have anticipated. Uh, um, it's about the, the, the voice of the church um, throughout uh, the, this crisis. And the, and the student, um, I believe he's a seminarian, perhaps his name is Toma Yalgelka, I hope I get it right, asks, essentially, why did the church uh, globally and without restraint or question give in to this shutting down of things, including, of course, of um, masses and so on. Uh, 
Father Paul, perhaps maybe you could, you know, sort of, you know, take a shot at that. I guess first, of course, is whether we stipulate that, in fact, the question is correct, that the church just gave in um, to the, the diktat of the state, you know, hey, shut down. Um, number one, do you think that that's an accurate uh, no, no, I, portrayal I, I of what have. happened? Yeah, please. No, no I, mean, I think one of the things we know is that the Catholic Church has a long memory, you know, and, uh, you know, they've lived through crises and uh, panics and plagues before. And, uh, and so I think our Catholic leaders, you know, from the Vatican, from local bishops, Cardinal Dolan is a church historian. I mean, I think, you know, they, they, they know what has happened in the past. And I think they had, and, and so I think they, and, and they've seen what the church had done in the past as well. So I think that it was a very reasoned response. And, and I think in terms of, and, and it certainly, I mean, you know, they've done their very best to be available in various types of online, you know, uh, services for people. So I, I think that, you know, I think they, you know, I, I certainly respect our hierarchy and our, you know, for, for responding with great compassion and care for their people. And I think, uh, you know, so I don't think, I, I, I really would uh, disagree with that, that question, that uh, perspective that they, they have been negligent in any way. But I think they have been caring pastors with a long memory. You know? And I think also with a concern for the common good was one of yeah, the, yeah. one of the yeah, strong sure, sure. motives for for complying with those things. Although I, like probably everybody else uh, um, on the panel and met most of the people, and can't wait to actually go back into a church with other people and maybe sure. um, celebrate the Eucharist with other people live and not online again. I mean, sure. it has been it has been a, a real burden um, to not um, have the. I mean, we call it real presence for for, for really good reasons. Sure, sure. That's good. I guess I could have wished for a little stronger response, not in the sense of having masses. I understand exactly why they felt exactly for the common good as you talked about it. Um, we had like a few priests, but not as many as I would like to see who would like take the take the sacrament out in the sac in the monstrance and walk around the streets of Philadelphia with it to make it present to people. I know that happened in Italy and other places. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how many priests really push hard to go ahead and risk their own help to, to accompany people in death and administer those final sacraments. I don't, mm -hmm. um, and, and above all, I would really have liked more spiritual um, ministering to the sense of loss of the sacrament for the faithful who are asked to stay home because communing online is not you know, it's not, sure, sure. We're, we're, we're Eucharistic people. We believe in the real presence. That's both of the sacrament, but also each other. Um, I found it really painful when we got to Easter and, and the liturgy was all about, you know, let's feast and I'm home not feasting. And, and I just, I, I could have appreciated a little bit more pastoral help with that. So, yeah, I, mean, I would say, I mean, I think I, I'm in agreement with everybody, but I do agree with you, Mary, there. What, one thing, Thing I thought was missing, or I just, you know, I, I'd see it occasionally, I wish I saw more, was the church articulating on her own terms what we were up to, right? You know, um, in terms of Mary, in a way of what you described before, the, the sense that, you know, we're all destined to die anyway, but destined hopefully to be reborn, um, and that what we are suffering here is provisional, right? And, and, and here's how and why we can rationalize momentarily stopping. Um, I, at times I felt it was, to the student's question, a little bit too much as though the church was receiving her orders from the state, you know, okay, and now go do it. And she was faithful. I'm sorry, I'm letting my dog into the room. And now she was 
faithfully, um, you know, responding reasonably to uh, the state. But there was, I think, an opportunity here to articulate what what we how we see this, and you know, and then respond accordingly. Why don't we um, wrap up? I have one more question um, that I um, want to direct our attention to, uh, and and then perhaps I think um, we, we may have said enough, even though there's so much more, of course, to say, and there's always other things that are intruding. Um, this is a forward-looking question, and I think it's a really good question uh, for us to end on. It's from uh, John Watkins, and he says, uh, or asks, do you have any thoughts about simply going back to the system we've had versus building a different and perhaps better system? And we've we've touched at times on some of the issues that COVID itself has sort of um, exposed. They're, they're there, but there's sort of inequalities in delivery of healthcare, inequalities in the kinds of conditions that predispose people to suffer more greatly, either economic or health conditions that you know, predispose them to suffer more greatly as a consequence of illness and so on, right? So there are lots of issues we've, we've discussed, but is there some hope that maybe this will allow us to, at the minimum, tinker with things and move forward in a better way? Do you, do you guys have anything to say to uh, John, the audience on that question? Maybe the economists could wait, you know, Kirk, you want to take a swipe at that first? Well, I think we're always changing over time and it's difficult to tell whether those changes are due to an event or would have happened anyway, uh, even without it. Um, but yeah. uh, so I'm certainly things will change in the future. If the question is leaning in, in the way that some of the, it, it's sometimes been phrased uh, elsewhere recently, I, I think it, it might, I don't want to overinterpret it. It might be leaning in the, in the, in the direction of, can we move past a relatively free market uh, capitalistic system to something more egalitarian uh, where that egalitarianism is attained not through um, redistribution ex post, but through some sort of ex ante communitarian ethos that's at the heart of our um, economic activity? Mm -hmm. I guess my answer would be I doubt it. Thank you. <laughs> I wasn't sure what the, um, was meant by the system. Yeah. Um, but in terms of changing, so Mary, watch out for the system. <laughs> I, I my own work tends to not focus on the system. I don't think too much about questions about how much state or how much private stuff we should have. Um, I think a lot about the culture, and this does seem to be like a big opportunity in the culture. We've already highlighted the, the strong impulse people had to make personal sacrifices to protect other people. There's a chance to build on that instinct of solidarity, mm, I think, which is really profound. For those who have been sort of kind of chilling out at home with the Netflix and the family and stuff, um, I had a million events that got canceled because of this. And I'm not totally sorry that my life slowed <laughs> down and I had a chance to. So, you know, there's room where maybe we'll see that some of our priorities weren't where they should have been. There's always that hope for renewal. My mm -hmm. fear is that we're going to think that online connections is a substitute for in-person connections. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just not right. In terms of healthcare, I think um, if this teaches us better ways of, uh, of caring for the elderly who have been disproportionately burdened by this, that would be a great outcome. Um, if we can find better ways of um, serving the healthcare needs of minority inner city populations, which um, um, disproportionately have been affected by the virus because they are disproportionately affected by high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, um, cigarette smoking, et cetera. Um, if it teaches us to find better ways to um, improve the uh, healthcare of the elderly and the, um, and the 
poor before um, the next pandemic, that would be valuable. Maybe I'm more in um, Kirk's uh, camp that I um, am skeptical it will happen, but we can hope that um, hope that people will wake up to sort of see that the disproportional effects in the population were due to pre-existing uh, uh, disproportionate treatments of certain segments of the population. Great, great. Father Paul, Paul uh, final word? Yeah, just one last thing. As I guess I was thinking about this at the end of World War II, reading our history, people were very pessimistic. You know, they were expecting a big depression and it didn't happen. You know, I think people were willing to pay high taxes, hold government bonds, uh, educating servicemen. I mean, so I think that maybe there will be a new patriotism and a new willingness for social cooperation. I mean, we could hope and pray for that, you know, as we recover. And God is a God of surprises, and that did happen at the end of World War II. I mean, obviously, there was the neglect of civil rights in the 50s and other bad things, but I mean, there were some surprising actions. Inequality decreased. There was uh, uh, increasing labor share in the population. Debt came down. There was steady economic growth. A lot of good things happened at that time when people were expecting, you know, another depression. Yeah, well, look, um, great. We ended on an optimistic note, uh, and okay. that was completely unorchestrated. <laughs> I, I just want to say this was a total pleasure for me uh, to get to know um, some of you guys, to get to know a couple of you better. Um, this is really fantastic conversation, and obviously just a right a kind of beginning or maybe the intermediate stage of a conversation that I'm sure will continue, and I hope um, some of us or all of us are able to do this again. Thank you all for your time. And Thank on you. behalf Pleasure of the... Yes, and on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute, I do want to thank each of you, our panelists, and um, especially you, Joe, for moderating, uh, doing a fantastic job moderating. Um, it's you. really hard to hold these conversations in Zoom, and uh, we appreciate each of you um, for the work that you've done to help um, expand this discussion, help us go a little deeper than sometimes uh, our polarized climate allows. Um, I want to thank each of our co-sponsors, but especially America Media, um, Credo, which is uh, the Catholic Research Economist Discussion Organization that actually three of our panelists are members of here today, um, and the Institute of Human Ecology at Catholic University of America, um, led by uh, Joe here. Um, we appreciate each of you, our audience members, for tuning in. Um, if you did enjoy tonight's conversation, please do share our programming with others. Um, not only will this video be up later on YouTube, um, but we have a great set of events coming up um, this week and into the future, into the summer. Um, and if you want to support our work to help deepen our cultural conversation with the leaven of Catholic social thought, you can donate today at www.lumenchristi.org. Um, once again, thank you to each of you um, for a great conversation, and we look forward to ongoing conversations in the future. All the best. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you very Bye. much, Harry. Good night now. Bye.